Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Neil Malik. Neil's the founder and CEO of K1 Investment Management, a Los Angeles-based firm specializing in high-growth software companies founded in 2011. I've had the pleasure of interacting with Neil over the last few years in several conversations about the future of this industry. Neil, I'm really pleased to delve into some of those themes with you today. Thank you for being here. Hi, Jen. Thank you for having me. So Neil, you're an SEO alum, and for the benefit of our listeners, SEO is Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. It's a nonprofit dedicated to engaging individuals historically underrepresented in our industry and other parts of the financial services sector. And I know you have a really compelling personal story here. Can you share a little bit more, Neil, about your SEO experience and what you've taken from it over your career? Absolutely. SEO was founded by Michael Auschwitz in the early 1960s. And SEO has meaningfully improved access and opportunity for diverse groups through education and access to career opportunities. And in the 1980s, Michael really wanted to address the lack of diversity on Wall Street. Wall Street's response, put simply, was, hey, if we could find qualified candidates, of course, we'd hire them. One of the primary ways into this sort of club of investment banking so to speak, was having, in many cases, connections with the people that were already on Wall Street, already on the inside, if you will. And these firms were not necessarily going out of their way to seek diversity on their own. And so SEO secured summer internships with over a dozen of these investment banks. And each week in this summer internship program that I had the opportunity to participate in, we were invited to a reception. They were hosted by the likes of Robert Rubin at Goldman Sachs, James Robinson at Merrill Lynch, Dennis Weatherstone at J.P. Morgan, and Michael Carpenter at Kidder Peabody, Morgan Stanley, Payne Weber, and so on. So I'm, I'm clearly dating myself here. But these were the CEOs of these firms at that time. And it was an incredibly unique opportunity to just be in the room with these people and learn from them. Everybody in the SEO internship program worked really hard and almost universally got offers to join their firms full time. This program, I think, was single-handedly one of the most impactful in changing the complexion of what Wall Street looks like today. Thousands of SEO alums have entered Wall Street thanks to the SEO Careers Division. And in fact, during my summer internship at Prudential Capital, the PRU invited me to go spend a week during the internship up in Boston at something called the Summer Venture and Management Program at Harvard Business School. And during that one week, that experience really encouraged me to apply to the, the graduate school there while I was still finishing up in my undergraduate program that fall. And after undergrad, I was really fortunate to then ultimately join JP Morgan. And that decision was really influenced by those weekly receptions we had. Um, the bank at JP Morgan, when I learned about their approach to investing in people, that included a full four-month training program, full-time. And the prospect of actually permanent full-time career path rather than the typical 18 to 36-month finite analyst program. And so investment banking was a great learning experience for me. And 
after a couple of years and looking down the road at what was ahead at the more senior folks in the firm, I recognized that what was most fulfilling to me was actually working with a company beyond a transaction, beyond a merger or a sale, but to help build a great business over a longer period of time. And that's when I started to explore private equity. And so in the early 1990s, what I learned by talking to people that were coming out of business school while I was still an analyst at JP Morgan was that to break into private equity after an MBA was actually really unlikely. Uh, the odds were still stacked against one that was trying to make that leap. But what was much more advantageous was to actually have private equity experience on the resume before one went to business school. And so in effect, again, you had to get into the club before coming out of an MBA program. And so unlike other investment banks, however, there were no real alumni from JP Morgan that had started PE firms, which was where a lot of the analysts would then feed into the kind of the alumni of these other iBanks. And so I had to cold call and fax resumes to over a hundred firms. There was no email back then. And I was lucky to get a couple offers between two very different firms and ultimately was able to break into private equity before business school. And today studies show that jobs and opportunity that one gets by the age of 23 have a profound impact on one's career. And so looking back, it's remarkable just how one door starting with SEO led to another and yet another. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that early experience and opportunity and that window that was open to me and have been actively giving back to SEO ever since. To dig a little bit deeper into that experience, Neil, and you've shared with me that your father was an inspiration in this journey. Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. Well, he uh, was a prototypical example of someone who was the first in his family to go to college and then to grad school. And he, he grew up in a very rural farming village in India and decided at a young age that he wanted to have a different life. And so he ultimately immigrated into the United States in the 60s and studied engineering and then got a master's in engineering. And so it was always his dream that once he elected not to return back to India and, and remain here, that one of his children would actually endeavor to be a physician. And so a friend of mine recently joked that as the product of Indian parents, you can be one of three things, a doctor, an engineer, or a failure. So when I told my dad that I actually didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, I wasn't sure what he was going to say, but ultimately... What I'll never forget is he said, look, whatever you do, just be the best. And I felt like that really gave me the freedom to dive in and give it my all. Talking about SEO and putting it in the context of your own firm, K1, it feels to me as though on the basis of numbers alone, you've created what feels like a truly diverse organization. So I wonder, what do you think that we can do collectively? to make this industry more diverse and welcoming to people of all backgrounds? And why has it been so difficult for the industry to break the mold in terms of going back to what you were saying about your SEO experience, you know, the profile of investment professionals that are being recruited into our industry. And hopefully you don't ascribe too much of that blame to the LPs, but I'm very interested in your answer. <laughs> no, I don't think there's a litmus test or an explicit bias around certain pedigrees from limited partners in the industry. I think, in fact, many of our investors find it quite refreshing when we talk about how K-1 has less than 5% of our team coming from elite undergrad schools. 
and that we actively seek out those who do not have any private equity experience or even prior investment banking experience to join our firm. At the macro level, in many organizations, recruiters focus on finding skill sets and pedigrees to winnow down the stacks of resumes they receive. And brand names are a shortcut in the process. If an executive that we're recruiting worked at Apple or Google, well, those brands carry an imprimatur that is then conveyed to any person who has that company on their resume. And I think the same is true for careers in finance. So the model building analysts in prestigious investment banking programs, for example, it's about pattern recognition. So, you know, in many cases, private equity firms and their recruiters look for established Wall Street banks on resumes. And those Wall Street banks in turn recruit exclusively or almost exclusively from elite schools. This perpetuates hiring out of what I'd call central casting that depending upon what streams you fish in, you you might get a lot of the same variety or lack thereof. Now, at the micro level, we also know that the best hires are likely to be referrals from existing employees. However, people are also more likely to know and therefore hire and recommend those who are more like them than different from them. So there's powerful forces of human behavior that can perpetuate things staying more or less as they are and not changing. And so making industries more diverse really requires people to get out of their comfort zones and seek out people that they would ordinarily not know or meet. Some may feel that the private equity industry has a lot of ego and an almost air of aristocracy associated with it. And so the opportunity to democratize access to private equity for us is an awesome and gratifying mission. We have so many people in our firm that would have likely not have had the opportunity to even get access to this great industry. And in many ways, we feel like we are changing the arc of people's lives and their families by helping them build careers in our industry and at K1. And you've described what's really inspirational rethink around what it takes to see some of these incredibly promising folks come into the industry, but so much of it comes back to human behavior and the change that only really happens when we get out of the comfort zone, as you say. It's been fascinating to see the change of pace and the embrace for DNI around some specific initiatives over the last few years. And I know that LPs are starting to put more questions, harder questions to their managers about the quality of diversity within their teams. And the LPs point to the fact that the answers they get are really illuminating when it comes to the culture and the values of the firm. And I know in your own firm, you've really put a premium on both of those, on values and culture, not just in recruiting, but also in developing your team. So you've been hands-on, or at least that's my estimation. What specific things have you done that have created the strongest sense of a team culture? And is this a critical area of focus, a likely area of focus for our industry? Yeah, Jen, I think that's a great question. You know, we think deeply about the kind of organization that we're trying to build. And we were fortunate early on to have some some great coaching and thought leaders in helping us build out our firm early on. And so after a grueling multi-year first-time fundraise, we did a lot of soul searching around what made us successful up until that early point in time and how we wanted to keep that spirit alive as we grew the team. And so we, we came up with and spent a long time thinking about it, four core values of what we think really helped us get our firm off the ground and succeed. 
And we use those same core values as the central element when we talk about any new hiring that we're considering or a candidate. We, of course, want to hire smart people. But there are actually a ton of smart people who didn't necessarily get the opportunity to attend an elite school. If a person is smart and matches our core values, we want to invest heavily in their learning and development. Our new recruits also go through a four-month training and onboarding program. They learn how to model and how to source deals and how to implement best practices at our portfolio companies. And so our recruiting allows us to prioritize cultural fit with our values and then to train the domain of private equity and investing in software companies within our own organization rather than relying on other companies to do that for us. And that, frankly, broadens the top of the funnel recruiting process with folks that, again, don't look like they come out of central casting. We also look actually to reinforce those values well beyond that. And so in our monthly all-hands meetings, we publicly recognize behaviors of employees that are exemplifying those values. And we can also use them in our private coaching if employees deviate from them too. The values on the wall sort of become the third person in the room when you're having these kind of coaching sessions. So look, our our culture, I think, is our greatest intangible asset and culture can be very powerful and can be very fragile if it's not nurtured. And I kind of define it as the sum total of every internal and every external interaction of our people at K1. And as a result, I think it's enabled us, this focus, to build a very high-performing, productive, and stable organization. And to your point, I mean, culture is only as good as the behaviors that bring it to life. And in terms of the behavior that exemplifies values, I wanted to call out the fact that you and your colleagues earlier this year announced an election day initiative aimed at encouraging employers to give employees a day off on November 3rd in the U.S. for the election, either to vote or to volunteer at the polls. And I'll just say that I found some statistics from electionday.org, pretty alarming. In 2016, more than 100 million eligible voters did not participate in the U.S. election. So I'm curious, how did your involvement in this initiative come about? And what's been the reception from your team, from your peers and your portfolio companies? Jen, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the statistics are, I think, nothing short of alarming. I think what I've seen is barely 56% of people that are eligible to vote actually do vote. And recent studies show an alarming portion of young people in this country don't necessarily believe that electing their leaders is important. They haven't also lived through what many of our parents and grandparents witnessed earlier in their lives with world wars and cold wars and the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example. But as I've gotten older and I've begun to appreciate kind of the what people know, you know, call this grand experiment this country represents and really how young it is from a historical perspective, we were really enlightened by a conversation we had with Professor Rebecca Henderson during one of our most recent virtual investor days. She wrote a book called Reimagining Capitalism at the beginning of this year. And in our interview, she commented and shared that the right to vote, it's not enshrined in the Constitution. It was really left up to the states. And it has been implemented with as much, shall we say, variety as there are protocols today for COVID around the country. And it's also become quite popular, I think, to denigrate government. And certainly a lot of the criticism may, may very well be justified. But according to research from Pew, since the 1960s, public confidence across every subsequent administration 
has been falling in almost a straight line to where it is now barely above 10% for the past decade. Meanwhile, business and industry trade groups since the 1970s have become particularly adept at self-advocacy, not necessarily for the greater good, but for very narrow business interests. And I think some of the sentiment may stem from this work of Milton Friedman's famous essay, where he said that there's only one social responsibility of business to increase its profits, so long as it engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. And so with that as sort of the, the mantra, it has really shaped much of, I think, how capitalism has developed over the last 50 years. And now today, according to data from Edelman, people now look to business and not the government to solve society's problems. And people appear to have a particular faith in the company they work for in that regard as well. We feel one of the best ways to support our institutions and our democracy is to work hard to increase participation and engagement. And so from our very small platform, we hope that many more limited partners and general partners and portfolio companies will follow suit. Private equity has a real opportunity to show leadership on this issue, among others. And I think when we made the announcement to give everyone in the firm and our portfolio the day off for election day, it was our most active post with over 20,000 views on LinkedIn. That's amazing, in particular when you consider the economic footprint that private equity has in the United States alone. So it's encouraging to hear that it drew such a positive response. To turn to you, Neil, as I like to do in the podcast, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions to give the audience an insight into you and your personality. So you're an entrepreneur. You founded K1 Investment Management. But when you were a young man, even before your time with SEO, did you imagine yourself as an entrepreneur? And what's been your most memorable or enlightening experience thus far as a CEO? I think that was something that kind of dawned on me at some point in high school. And so I always had a, a desire to be part of building something. You know, th there's a moment, I think, in many people's lives when everything isn't going as planned. And I think almost everyone will have issues around health, family, money, or maybe all of them. These setbacks and challenges can be devastating in the moment. At K1, we call them bricks in the head. I think when I left school, I had this view that, okay, I've learned, and now it's just about working hard and, and executing. And life inevitably hits you with a brick or even three, <laughs> in my case. And, and, and you eventually begin to realize that you don't know everything you should and that life is a journey of continuous learning. So I think reading and learning from other people's journeys, I think, has really helped me with how we organize our firm how we develop our people, and how we nurture our culture. We've even instituted a book club within the firm. And in fact, new hires, before they even start their first day, are shipped to kind of a welcome package. And in that package, uh, among other things, are a few really impactful titles that have influenced our development that we want to really share with each of our new members of the firm. There's an author by the name of Pat Lencioni, and he's a leading expert on organizational health with books like The Advantage, the Advantage is a really great entry point into his frameworks and, and teachings. Vern Harnish, his books center around the execution of strategy, 
and titles like Scaling Up and Rockefeller Habits. And then a couple more recent ones that we've added, Team of Teams by General McChrystal and First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. And all of these folks have become friends of the firm. And I think it's been a really amazing opportunity for us to learn from the stories they bring to life and had the opportunity to really incorporate their teachings into what we do. It's fantastic. I've got some experience with the uh, Lencioni book, Five Dysfunctions, so that's great. Now to turn to a- Clearly that was not an ILPA though. (laughs) No, clearly not. What's something that might surprise some of your LPs to know about you? I recall reading a case study in school about 100 years ago with a company called Emerson Electric and how the CEO would sit in the center of all of his employees. And he would be in the middle of the action, spot issues and opportunities before they snowballed. And more recently, I've read books around Michael Bloomberg's story and then General McChrystal with his book, Team of Teams. And all of these leaders in these different settings espoused a similar highly engaged approach to leadership and information sharing. And then I connected the dots with something that goes way back to when I was in my high school physics class and my teacher telling us about how what it was like in the real world. When he proceeded to draw with chalk on the, on the board, a big square. And basically this square resembled an office floor plan. And he then said, well, look, when you guys get in the real world, you're gonna be on a floor that looks like this square. Now, the most junior people, they're gonna sit in cubes in the middle of this square. Now, the most senior people, well, they'll get to sit along the sides of this square in these offices that have windows. But the people that really run the place, well, they're going to be in these four corner offices. And so at K1, we've been rapidly growing and have had to move a number of times in our organization's history. And I recalled in prior organizations that I've been at that certain promotions were literally linked to our footprint in real estate. And so if you're going to promote, for example, one or more people, let's say a VP, it needs to come with a private office because there are these expectations. And so If the footprint of the office that we were in didn't have enough extra offices for the number of people that we promoted to a certain level, the physical footprint could actually be dictating, to some degree, the human capital strategy. So when we designed our current office, which we literally just moved into last year, last May, we just did away with all of the offices. We do hope to ultimately return to this at some point more broadly, but we all just work at the same size workstations, at the same size computers and monitors. And I think it's really energizing for all of our people, including our senior leaders, to be right in the middle of all that energy. Going back to election day, and I know we've heard this ad nauseum from a lot of the advocates who are really out there trying to get more folks to exercise their sacred duty and franchise. What's your plan to vote, Neil? Well, we have ballots that arrived in the mail not long ago. And in California, we not only have to vote up ballot and down ballot, we have to become educated on a number of propositions. And these referendum are basically put out to the public. And many of them have had significant impacts on the state. And so this year is no different than any main election year. And so it's not as simple as taking the box on all these candidates requires us to get online and do some real research and understand what all these propositions are about. But the plan is actually later this afternoon to sit down with paper and pencil and a laptop 
and wrap up our ballots. And then we were fortunate that we have a Dropbox collection inside of our city here where we can physically drop them off and get those ballots in, hopefully with plenty of time for them to arrive by election day. Fantastic. That's a great note to end on. Let's all vote. Let's all make a plan to vote for those of us in the U.S. Neil, thank you for such a wonderful and engaging conversation. Thanks. I I couldn't agree more. Get out there and vote. Again, Jen, thanks to you and thanks to ILPA for inviting me to speak today. 